Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to go from the liberal arts as a history major and eventually move into the tech startup world, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a highly experienced serial entrepreneur who is currently the co-founder and CEO of Get My Boat, the Airbnb for boats. But before I introduce you to Sasha Mornell, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Sasha, who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my C-suite aspiring cappuccino lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Sasha Monell, the CEO and co-founder of Get My Boat, the world's largest boat rental and water experience marketplace. From Miami to Michigan and from Long Beach to Long Island, Get My Boat has over 150,000 listings in at least 9,400 destinations around the world. Launched in San Francisco in 2013, about 10 years ago, Get My Boat empowers owners of every type of boat from kayaks to sailboats to motorboats to list their watercraft for rent or for charter online. Prior to starting Get My Boat, Sasha was the chairman and co-founder of Facile, a leading federal government technology contractor. And since graduating from UC Berkeley with a major in history, Sasha has worked in a wide variety of jobs and industries, from bartending in London to marketing management for Breyers Ice Cream in Japan, to getting a coveted spot in the NBA's International Marketing Training Program right out of business school. Sasha has a whole bunch of wisdom and some absolutely hilarious stories to share. I hope he's going to get to share at least one of them. Sasha, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your Pete's Coffee and ready to go? I am ready to go and caffeinated as heck. Excellent. Well, from what I have read about you, Sasha, I think you are the kind of guy who is just born ready. <laughs> ready for an adventure. Am I right? I Adventure calls. I could not agree more. <laughs> As a fellow adventurer, uh, we're kindred spirits there. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. 
By the way, and this is to our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about how to break into the tech startup world, check out show notes for this episode to see if Sasha's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. So, Sasha, before we flash back to the beginning, at least to your time as an undergrad at Berkeley, I was thinking it would be fun for us to talk about your fourth child. Because you're not only the father of three boys, one of whom is going to be heading off to college next fall, but you are also the father, the co-founder of Get My Boat, which is almost 10 years old. We are actually doing this interview at the end of October 2022. And I am using that description deliberately. You can push back because I've heard other startup founders say that going from birthing an idea that came out of nowhere from someone's imagination and then nurturing that idea into infancy, then into childhood, and eventually getting it out of the nest or in the startup lingo, getting an exit, (laughs) selling your baby is kind of similar to being a parent. What do you think? I think that I tread very lightly when we talk about birthing as a male. And <laughs> I'm, I want to be very careful about that. But yes, uh, startups are like children and that journey. And this is, would be my sixth child, believe it or not, because I've had two other startups that went from infancy to an exit, as you pointed out, and get my boat is, is the most current one. But yes, it is very, Wonderful, satisfying, discouraging, difficult, tiring, exhilarating journey. And your startups are like your children. So can you share with our listeners how this exhilarating journey with Get My Boat came to be? Where did this idea come from? And how did you turn that idea into a living, breathing business? Sure. So my business partner and I, who I've been the other co-founder of Get My Boat, uh, Raf Collado, he and I have been together actually since my first startup or startup experience back at register.com about 22 years ago. And he and I partnered together on Facile, which we'll get into. And it had grown to be a very mature company. And he and I are serial entrepreneurs and builders. And as Facile was getting to maturity in 2012, 2013, both he and I were looking around at additional opportunities. We wanted to build something new. We, we like to be in the arena and like to create things from nothing. And this was really the period in which Airbnb and Uber, the asset light model, if you were, where people had goods, but they weren't using them very much, a second home, etc. This was that... I have to take you back. This was that environment. And so as he and I were thinking about other areas where we wanted to to make something or expand, and particularly in technology, because that was our expertise, we looked at underutilized assets. And one of those happens to be boats. A boat is only used on average about 8% of the year. 
We had seen what was going on with the Airbnbs of the world, with Turo, which is a, a car sharing program, obviously Uber and Lyft, etc. And we thought, boy, this, this market is so inefficient. These really expensive assets are just sitting in the water. And we'd like to make the joke sunk costs. And isn't there a way that we could enable a platform or marketplace to allow people to make money off these assets, but also share their, their passion because boating is a very emotionally driven pursuit. And that really was how this was born. As I mentioned in the introduction, Get My Boat is 10 years old. Could you take us behind the scenes and maybe share a real life story about what it's been like over the last 10 years? Because I know that there are some folks who maybe have really kind of swallowed the Kool-Aid on the unicorn stories, the, <laughs> you know, Facebooks, the, you mentioned Airbnb, the Rent the Runway, other mega startup successes. And there's still a kind of romanticized mystique around the startup world. And those companies that you've mentioned, we are honored to be thought of with that company. Those startups all raise either hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. And I agree with you that there's a lot of romance around the tech startup world that you have an idea, you create a simple website or app or a platform. Instantly, the phone is ringing off the hook for venture capital to fund you. And within 15 minutes, you're now a unicorn or a billion-dollar valued company. I've certainly found that the reality is much grittier. The signing up for something like this means that even though I'm the CEO and co-founder, it means that you do all jobs seven days a week. I don't want to say 24 hours a day, but you're always on call, if you will. And so you have to do a bit of everything. You've got to do finance, product design, hiring. You're dealing with HR, recruiting. You are trying to convince users and customers to come onto the platform, something that they've never done. It seems like a good idea, but for a boat owner to try your platform, they may not believe that this is going to give them more business or they'll ask, well, what other customers do you have? So there's a lot of sales that you are trying to convince people as a disciple. And so many times, many startups also are not able to raise money unless it happens to be a quote unquote hot area of the market for venture capital. And so those are things behind the scenes that most people don't see about any type of startup. It could be tech, it could be manufacturing, whatever it may be. And you're always worried about making payroll. You're always worried about bringing people on to this journey with a high likelihood of failure. And I'll conclude this comment by saying, in the press, it looks like everyone's an overnight success story. And I always push back and say, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success story. So where is Get My Boat in this life cycle in terms of being a success? I know you partnered with and have an investment with Yenmar. You can explain what Yenmar is. And they've bought 
what was it, 49% or 51% of Get My Boat recently? Could you kind of give us a state of play of where Get My Boat is? Sure. So about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, we were about eight or nine years in. We had a small investment from Yamar. Yamar is a massive Japanese conglomerate. They have a engine manufacturing division in the marine space. They are a private company out of Japan. They've been around for about 110 years, do about $10 billion in sales. So they made a small investment in us back in 2017, 2018 timeframe. My business partner and I have taken venture capital in previous startups that we've had and decided on this particular journey, we we're fortunate to have some resources. We didn't want to pursue that path. Can you say why? That's a whole other podcast, but in brief, venture capital comes with a lot of strings. And to be very succinct, venture capitalists' job is to maximize the value of their investment. And they will do that any way possible, but everything else is secondary to that. My business partner and I believe in product. We believe in our employees, customer service, taking time to find the product market fit and not necessarily throwing money at growth. And so we just had a very different view based on our previous experience. And that was not a path that we wanted to take. So we had this strategic partner, Yamar, who made this, this investment. And then about 15 months ago, there was us and a few other competitors in the space. Some things started changing last summer, particularly one European competitor by the name of Click and Boat was acquired by a huge growth equity fund, Primera. And that really changed the dynamics of our marketplace where a super well-funded competitor was threatening to come into the United States. So we had to pivot from our strategy of just growing organically and slowly and started looking around to what's best for our future and what's best for the company. And that at that point, included looking to some of the other companies that had been interested in acquiring us. So that process, and you talked in the espresso shots about how busy we have been for the last 17 or 18 months. That process is a very intense process. And it turned out that EMR was interested in acquiring a majority stake in Get My Boat. They knew us very well. They knew me very well. We had a good working relationship over the last four to five years. They are a manufacturing company, but had interest in the tech space and learning about technology. And it turned out that that was, as as the saying goes, was an offer that we couldn't refuse. And so fast forward to where we are today, Yanmar is uh, the majority shareholder. They own a majority stake in the company. And we couldn't be happier with the partnership and relationship as it stands today. Congratulations. Thank you. So what is the valuation of Get My Boat right now? It is undisclosed, but very high. And we're very happy with (laughs) how it turned out. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Sasha, could you, in a sentence or two, just give us a high-level overview of the life cycle of the typical startup? In terms of key milestones, just in a broad brushstroke way. I would say there is no typical path. However, 
and I will give you the broad brushstrokes. Um, it takes, again, this is from my own experience. It takes three to five years to get any type of traction. You are working on the ramen budget, which means that you're lucky to be eating ramen every day. You're conserving resources. You are putting everything you have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no vacations, all, any financial resources into the company to try and get some type of product market fit, which is basically a fancy way of saying customers and adoption of whatever it is that you're trying to do. If you're fortunate, you hit some of that, the company then starts taking off. You can either at that point take in venture capital, potential private equity, growth capital, strategic capital from a, a company like we did with EMR, or just grow organically. And then from there, the growth either accelerates or continues. And that's kind of the first, let's call it five to seven years of the life cycle of a startup. Thank you. So I want to press pause on Get My Boat for a moment. And I want us to flash back to when you were an undergrad at Berkeley. As I mentioned in the introduction, you majored in history. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Sasha? Absolutely not. And I think that that's important to say. I graduated with a history degree, but I have my MBA, right? But back then, I wouldn't have taken a business course if they were free or filled with people that I admired. So I loved history at the time, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was a major that allowed me to study a lot of other courses, whether it was political science or rhetoric or English. But I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was fortunate my junior year. I knew that I love politics. And I think this is where you and I intersect a bit. But I, my junior year summer, I went and interned on Capitol Hill. And that is something I thought they might do after college. But again, and to be completely candid, I didn't know. So what was your first job after you graduated? And how did you get it? So I graduated in three and a half years. The summer I alluded to, my junior uh, year summer, I was in, on Capitol Hill. I was an intern and I was in the legislative branch and the judiciary in the Senate. And the folks I was working with, they were just these wonderful lawyers from Wisconsin. They actually extended my, my work into the fall. So I took, I graduated from, from school in three and a half years. They offered me a job coming out of school, which my parents wanted me to take. It was 1990, 1991. There was a recession and jobs. It was hard to get a job waiting tables back at that point. So my parents thought I'd go back to Washington after college, but I wanted to travel. We talked at the beginning of this that we're adventure lovers. I wanted to get out uh, in the world. And so my first job was in London as a bartender. And my graduation present was a one-way ticket, a plane <laughs> ticket. <laughs> I love <laughs> it one I, way. <laughs> well, exactly. I didn't give that much thought at the time, but I think my parents were angry that I wasn't taking that job on Capitol Hill. And uh, there was something being said with that one-way ticket. Oh my gosh. Love that. And actually, before we move on with your story, 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what you did outside the classroom at Berkeley. I know that you were a lacrosse player, but were there any other extracurriculars or hobbies or frankly, even if it was just lax, do you think any of these activities played a role in helping prepare you for the working world? So it really was just lacrosse. And that was a full-time extracurricular activity at Berkeley at the time. So there was fall ball. We had to come back from on winter break. We had to come back early and do two-a-days. And then obviously throughout all the spring. And the only time we really had was the summer in which I tried to do different things. And I mentioned the junior year and, and going uh, and getting an internship on Capitol Hill. But it really was just lacrosse. And I wasn't beyond life skills, which you've referenced in espresso shots. I wasn't getting the work skills, if you will, in either business or medicine or even law for many of the the folks that work on Capitol Hill. I I was just blissfully unaware. I knew I had to do well in in school. And so I, I graduated cum laude. But beyond that, I don't think I brought many skills to the table in what I was doing. Well, I'm going to push back on that because being able to work on a team and have that esprit de corps and, you know, watching out for your teammates back. And then on top of that, the work ethic and the curiosity, intellectual curiosity, all of those quote unquote soft skills are super valuable, super important, no doubt played, have played a huge role in getting you where you are today. I want to move forward from the bartending in London to how you ended up in Tokyo working for Briar's Ice Cream in marketing. And that's kind of, you and I overlapped in Tokyo. We didn't meet. We didn't, you know, it wasn't in real life. And we were also living very different lives. I was working for CNN. I had a nice, albeit very small house in Tokyo, which is unheard of. And it was very different from the life that you were living, Sasha. It's a very cushy life. I, I, I always, when I was living in Tokyo, I always looked at the folks from CNN or Goldman Sachs or, or companies and said, boy, that was a much easier way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. So I'll take you back for a sec. So from London, I worked as a bartender, then messed around in Greece for the summer after that or the fall. And then was actually a personal trainer in Paris at a gym. So I really had wanderlust and a sense for adventure. And I used the skills that you referred to, the soft skills for me was being an athlete. Uh, obviously, a bartender in London in a pub, they would basically take anyone. But I used those skills and those translated into my earlier entrepreneur background, which I didn't realize was going to be a calling. From there... After about a year, year and a half in Paris and starting this personal training business and a very successful business, it was time for me to move on and do something different. I came back to the United States with the quote idea of getting a real job. Again, referring back to the time as 1991 or so, 1992, there weren't a lot. And uh, even though I had interviewed for several positions at a variety of different companies, nothing was appealing and nothing was really working out. I had always had an interest in Japan and some connections. It's actually Dryer's Ice Cream on, on the West Coast. 
And so armed with just... At this time, I did have a return trip ticket. <laughs> so armed with a ticket to Tokyo, no experience with speaking the language, but armed with a letter from Dryers of introduction. They had a joint venture over in Tokyo with a Japanese trading company. I got on a plane and just headed over there. Continue to make my way in the world. I figured if I could do it in London and Paris, why not in Tokyo? So what was your life like in Tokyo? It was... Uh, there's there's some expressions that... Uh, well, back in the early 90s, it, like being a, an alien on a foreign planet, uh, in this case, Earth. But as you remember, it's a crazy place over there. So really, the first part of my journey in Tokyo and Japan was securing a job. I didn't want to teach English, which was the path that many took. I was able to leverage an interview with this joint venture, Dryer's Ice Cream and Nisho EY. And they had a need for somebody like me that spoke English and could be a go-between, if you will, from a marketing perspective and sales perspective with the office back in California. I was able to leverage that into a job. But then I also was learning the language at night. So I, I would be working during the day in a very foreign environment. No one in this trading company really spoke English. I'm trying to learn the business, trying to make my way. And then at night, from 5 to 8 at night, I'd go to class to learn Japanese. And so it really was a, a rigorous first few years. I love this because I just want to point out if this hasn't already like had a little light bulb go off in the heads of any of our listeners. but you know, things do come around, right? I studied Chinese as an undergrad. I actually studied it in college and didn't go to work like teaching Chinese, but I ended up using my Chinese as a foreign correspondent in China. And then after my first, in my first job after I graduated, and there's Sasha who goes to Japan for an adventure, hustles himself a job, studies Japanese. And who is the investor and the company that buys the majority share in his company, but a Japanese company. I'm guessing that you've been able to use some of your Japanese language abilities. I have. And it is serendipity, as they say, and things come around. And it's been made known to me by this company that my experience in Japan and appreciation of Japanese culture, which I, I do tremendously, as I'm sure you do. and many aspects of the culture, which we try and embrace just as, as good values, were things that were attractive to them in a partner. A partnership investment, etc., is difficult across country, countries and cultures. And so that made them much more comfortable, my experience in speaking Japanese, but understanding the experiences and where they were coming from, I think were very helpful in doing this deal. So to hit this point home and underscore it, you don't have to know exactly where various experiences that you're having are going to lead you. But if you are truly listening to your own intuition and following your interests, trust the process. Just trust it. So from Tokyo, you went to Harvard Business School. And after you graduated from HBS, you got what you thought was going to be your dream job at 
the NBA in their international management training program. When did you have the aha moment that that wasn't for you? And how did you deal with it? I just want to emphasize this for a second because I, I can't emphasize this enough to what you just said. I'm going to repeat it. After business school, I got my dream job. It was the dream job, the National Basketball Association, international management. I was going to work through the NBA in all the various divisions, television, sponsorship, promotions, operations, working with McDonald's, working with the international television group, and then be posted over in Hong Kong as the assistant director for the Asian Pacific region. I mean, I could not have thought of a better job coming out of business school. And I knew within the first week that this was not for me. Being in New York, in the National Basketball Association, the NBA's head office, I realized culturally, this was not a fit for me. So what did you do? It was a very hard year and going around to the various divisions and trying to convince myself that I was wrong, meaning everything I just said about being a dream job and opportunities. I said, I have to be wrong about this. It doesn't get better than this. And I was miserable for a year. And so the week before I was supposed to go to Hong Kong and be posted there, I realized you know, I don't know when the epiphany occurred or if it was just a year of buildup that I was true to myself and said, I can't do this. I cannot go all the way over to Hong Kong and be with this organization. It's not right for me and it's not the right decision. So I have to quit. And that's what I did. What advice do you have for our young listeners, Sasha, who may have their own idea of whatever that dream job is? And then have the realization, if they get it, that it isn't all they expected it to be. I mean, do you think that there really is such a thing as a dream job? I think I've been living it in terms of the startups I've created and and the companies I've created. Those to me are my dream jobs. The advice I would say is it's hard. And again, this has been a theme to some of your listeners. Cut yourself slack. But you have to be true to yourself. And if you're miserable, if you're miserable, there are other options. Take those other options, even if it means there's a bridge between option one and two, meaning you have to quit and take some time. Life is too short to be doing what other people view as a dream job or opportunity. You have to live your own life. So how did you then live your own life after you quit? And how did you end up at register.com where you became the vice president of sales and marketing? So again, to be fully transparent, I, was, I quit the MBA. I've left my dream job and just taking people back. I was miserable, right? So I just spent this very difficult year. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? This was everything I could have imagined. It didn't work out. And I was depressed and had quit no job in New York City. So I just, there's some perspective on this. It was a very low point of my life. I was age 28. I'd finished business school, 
thought I was king of the world. And so it was very humbling. And out of being humbled, I was open to talking to people. And one of the people I talked with was the founder of a company called Foreman Interactive. Foreman Interactive had a variety of businesses, but one was this fledgling little part of the business called register.com. It was really just a domain name at that point. And I interviewed with this, this entrepreneur and business owner. And he said, why don't you come aboard and start this domain registration business? It's called register.com, which back in at the time, 1997-98, was a regulated business. It was going to become deregulated. It was just starting. People were just starting to get on the internet. And he asked me to come aboard at a very low salary in a grimy little office and factory that his dad owned in Brooklyn. And I said, sure, why not? And is it accurate? This is what I've read, that just two years after you joined Register, it became an 800 million IPO. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So I was the first employee at Register.com. And over the next two years or so, the entire company migrated under that umbrella and, and the other businesses were folded into that and all the resources were put into the Register.com brand. And we took in venture capital and just grew like an absolute rocket ship, part of which was because we went from a regulated industry to where we were pushing on Capitol Hill to have the industry deregulated, meaning that there could be competition. So we were the first competitor to a company called Network Solutions out of the gate. And so from day one, we had been building the brand. We took off like a rocket ship. And at that time, it was the thing to do was to go public very, very quickly which is what we did. And there you go. And I'm guessing Sasha Mornell was hooked. I was hooked. I, I make jokes about this. So we were in this grimy factory, 30 people packed into this tiny little office. This is a true story. I literally had to throw my shoes away after two months because they were black with the soot from the floor. And I couldn't believe how happy I was creating this company out of nothing and technology and platform and the optimism that I've touched on. I was like a pig in mud as to be polite and realized this was my calling. So how did you go from register to finding the person who would become your brother in arms? (laughs) That's right. Raphael. Yep. And deciding to start Facile. So sometimes you don't make decisions, they're made for you. And what I mean by that is I got a phone call one day at register.com from this entrepreneur by the name of Raf Collado. He had a product. He was a serial entrepreneur. I didn't know this at the time. He called me up, just cold called me and said, Hey, we've got this product called In a Box website now, which was a perfect product for register.com as we were trying to justify the price that we were charging our customers. Meaning in addition to a domain name, you could build a quick website very easy at the time. And again, this I'm taking everyone back, but back in 1997, 98, this was all really new stuff. And from there, we went on and bought his company. He and I bonded very quickly. He's older. He's an engineer. I'm more on the business side. He's more on the engineering and product side. And we realized that even though we look nothing alike and have completely different backgrounds, 
our values were the same, our passions were the same, our trust level with each other was very, very high. And he basically, I left register after the IPO. It was time for me to move on. There was some disagreements with the CEO and the direction of the company. I was fortunate financially that I could do that. And he said, we're going to do something together. And from that, he and I started to brainstorm ideas. And, and that's how Facile was born. Two final T4C questions, Sasha. And these are questions I try to ask all of my guests. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed or face planted. You may want to refer us back to your time at the NBA. But the important part of this example is how you persevered. So the resilience thread. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Doing your own thing, forging your own path, listening to your own voice, which we've talked a, a lot about, means that you're going to fall on your face a lot. So I will just preface that. And to your point, the resilience, persistence, ability to pick yourself up is really something that has been ingrained in my life. I will actually take you back to a different falling on your face moment, which back in Tokyo. So two years into my tenure at Dryer's Ice Cream and Nisho EY, having learned to speak Japanese, I'd lived in an all-male dormitory, was living the life, enjoyed my time tremendously, was really understanding the marketing of the Japanese ice cream market, so to speak. It, it came to my attention that my boss, the Japanese boss, was doing something wrong. And what I mean by that is, since I had a, a chance to look at the numbers, they, they weren't adding up. Something was missing, something, there was different bank accounts, something was off. And I thought about this and sat on this for a while. And then it dawned that he was stealing from the company. I didn't know all the mechanics, et cetera. It was obviously something I couldn't prove exactly, but that was the conclusion I came to. And so I was at a decision point, what do I do? What do you do in something like this? And me being the innocent, naive person that I still am today, the optimistic person, I thought about who I should bring this to the attention of. And I brought it to the attention of the executives of Dryer's Ice Cream in California. The short answer back from them after considering what I had brought up was, well, we're in business with your boss. We trust him. You are just a lowly marketing person that has just been at the company for a very short time. And so we're going to support him and not believe what you have to say. And so this was an unbelievably difficult period. So imagine that you kind of walked out on that branch or, or diving board and somebody behind you basically cut it off. So they, they were supposed to be my support and supposed to back me up on this. And they didn't. And so I thought, well, am I going to get fired? Am I going to get found out? Obviously, that is that treasonous? Is that the wrong thing to do? I'm going to have to go back and start all over again. Long story short, very shortly after that, as I was going through this very low point and thinking I'd done the wrong thing, that maybe I should have just gone along with what was going on. The larger Japanese company, as I said, this was a joint venture, the Shosha, the, the trading company, 
came in and with a forensic team of accountants just one day and a much older uh, Japanese gentleman who is a more senior, senior accountant came in and sat behind all of us and they started going through the books. And it turned out that he had been stealing from the company and it had turned out that I'd been right all along, but it didn't matter. Even when this came to, to light with the American side of the business, it wasn't recognized. Nothing was ever said. The touching part of the story was this. And the end of the story is the, the senior accountant who I've been very frightened of. He was incredibly senior in the company and just had a very stern demeanor. Came to me as, as my time was ending over there, as I had applied to business school and thought that I needed a different path. Came to me and thanked me for what I had done and said that I was a very noble person and brave person for doing what I did. But certainly in the moment, gives you very little comfort. And it was a very tough few months of, of just feeling awful and very alone and abandoned by people that you thought you could trust. What a powerful story, Sasha. And it speaks volumes about the kind of human you are. I know that's not why you told it, but it certainly does. Final question here. If you could go back to Berkeley and do it all over again, and I know you have your oldest child who will be heading off to college, whether it's on the West Coast or somewhere else, but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? My son just turned 18 and I, I wrote him a letter, proud dad, and considering this question to some degree. And the advice I would give is do it all. Embrace the heck out of your experiences in life. When you're younger, you think that you have forever. And I get that. I certainly felt that way in college. And what I mean by that is whatever you major in, do something else. If you're in medicine, try and do some art. Take as many extracurricular activities that you can that your schedule will allow. Take advantage of everything that college offers. And what I mean by that is it's a broad canvas of opportunities and opportunities big and small, classes, activities, things outside your comfort zone. If you are worried about failing, take it past fail. Fail. Who cares? I failed some business classes when I was an MBA because I had realized this lesson. And so if you're worried about that for grades, and I understand that and achievements, take it past fail, but just do as much as you can. Because it's a wonderful opportunity over the four years to try things. And whether it's learning a language or going somewhere for a semester, but take as much advantage as you can of that moment of not worrying about being an adult, not worrying about what's next. That will come for the rest of your life. But live in the moment, take advantage of what's in front of you and try and really have a diversity of experiences in a very, and it may not seem this way, but a very safe environment. Sasha is the CEO of Get My Boat. That's all one word, getmyboat.com. If you have a boat you want to rent by the day, by the week or longer, make sure to sign up. Or if you want to have an adventure on the water, whether it be in a kayak, a boat, a yacht, or just to go whale watching or scuba diving, make sure to check out the website. Sasha, 
I want to thank you sincerely for making the time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was incredible. It was my pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful talking with you. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.